We're all familiar with the dramatic contributions of Thomas Jefferson to American history. I dare say this room wouldn't be this full if we were not. <laughs> so what can you say about Jefferson? Author of the Declaration of Independence, wartime governor of Virginia, emissary to France, author of Virginia's Statute for Religious Freedom, Secretary of State, President, Architect, Farmer, and Indefatigable Letter Writer. All these contributions are familiar, but what isn't so well known to most people are his years in retirement. Jefferson returned to Monticello in 1809 at the end of his second presidential term, and he died there 17 years later. In his new book, Alan Pell Crawford reveals the private Jefferson at home, coping with debt and illness, mediating family quarrels, and navigating public disputes, but still a towering figure in the early republic. Mr. Crawford's previous book on a Virginia subject was Unwise Passions, a true story of a remarkable woman and the first great scandal of 18th century America. Many of you remember that book, I'm sure, and also Mr. Crawford's talk here in 2001 on the subject Growing Up in Jefferson's Shadow, The Unwise Passions of the Founder's Children. So please welcome back Alan Pell Crawford, who will speak to us about his new book, and I'll put in a shameless merchandising plug, it's for sale at the shop, his new book, Twilight at Monticello, The Final Years of Thomas Jefferson. Alan? Thank you, uh, Paul. I also want to thank um, Nelson Lankford, who helped set this up, and uh, Charlie Bryan for his, I'm not sure is here today, but for his uh, 20 remarkable years of service to the Virginia Historical Society. You know, it is hard to believe that it's been since 2001 that I spoke here last. Uh, this building, this, this uh, room, as I understand it, didn't even exist at that time. Um, but I can say, looking out here, that, uh, that in, in that amount of time, you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> you look great. Um, you know, in my writing and my approach to narrative history, uh, I, I tend to think in, in visual images and, um, that are uh, rather novelistic or even cinematic. It helps sort of organize my thoughts and it hooks me into... Um, uh, situations that, that make the past very vivid come alive for me, and, and I think for readers. I'm going to mention three of those uh, images today, uh, the third of which I hope you can sort of get fixed in your mind as it, as it got fixed in mine, uh, and uh, led to some of the things I want to say today about Jefferson and, and some, of his little, some of his thinking. Uh, all, the, all three of these appear in, in Unwise Passions. Uh, one of them, the second, actually led to the writing of, of Twilight at Monticello. The, uh, the first um, uh, was at the um, sensational court hearing in Cumberland County in 1793 at which Nancy Randolph, born at Tuckahoe, uh, the, had, uh, the sister-in-law of of Richard Randolph of Bizarre Plantation, at which they, these two young people, not yet uh, 20, were accused of uh, her having given birth to his 
child and the two of them killing it. Now, at this court case, as some of you know, the Randolphs hired to defend them a, very, a rather young John Marshall and a rather old Patrick Henry. Martha Jefferson Randolph, Thomas Jefferson's daughter, who had married Nancy Randolph's brother, Thomas Mann Randolph, Jr. of Tuckahoe, testified at this hearing, as did John Randolph, again, not yet 20, who, was, uh, who would become known to history as Randolph of Roanoke, a cousin of Jefferson's. Now, at this hearing, a young John Randolph testified that he knew Nancy Randolph could never have been pregnant during this period because at a bizarre plantation about 70 miles uh, southwest of here. They frequently lounged on the beds together, and he knew that she never wore stays. This was fascinating to me because it was such an intimate glimpse of these young people living without adult supervision, as I said, on a plantation 60, 70 miles from here, obviously with too much time on their hands. <laughs> now, in 1799, Nancy Randolph, her, her uh, opportunities to marry a Virginia gentleman by this to point, totally ruined, was allowed to visit her cousins and her brother at Monticello. It was there she wrote to, to St. George Tucker of Williamsburg that she found the house in a terrible state of dilapidation. Then this got, my, got me thinking. I thought, well, it, obviously Monticello as we know it today didn't look like it does now in 1799, and the more I delved into it, it seemed like it never did. Um, and so I got very interested in writing about what life at, uh, at Monticello was really like, which, which resulted in the book Twilight at Monticello. Now, the third image, and the one I'd kind of like you to sort of uh, get, I hope it gets fixed in your mind the way it did in mine, was back in April, on April 1, 1796, Benjamin Latrobe, who was fresh out of, fresh from England, uh, later to become the architect of the U.S. Capitol, Latrobe had sailed, had arrived from England, had sailed out of Norfolk, bound for Hampton, and was there. He hoped to catch a mail coach to Richmond, which he did, and then he went on to uh, Tuckahoe and later to Bazaar Plantation at the time of Richard Randolph's death, and left a terrific diary, invaluable resource uh, about his travels in Virginia. But he said, uh, sailing on the Elizabeth River when he first arrived, that, that there were wagon wagons on the, on the uh, riverbank, and he inquired about this, and he was told that, that thousands of runaway slaves had gathered there during the American Revolution 15 years before because they had been promised their freedom if they would run away from the plantations uh, they would be sent to England to be free men. And um, these wagons, uh, Latrobe wrote, were, and I quote, filled with the bones of men, women, and children, stripped of their flesh by the vultures and hawks which abound here, and covered the sand for a more, most considerable length. Fascinating image, a very grim one, that, uh, that only within the last couple of weeks that I looked uh, into a little more of that story, which I'd like to, which I will get to in a moment. Um, now move forward to 1814. Jefferson has now been retired from the presidency for about five years. He's living with his daughter, Martha Randolph, with her children at Monticello. 
He's devoting himself to these many uh, projects he wanted to devote his, his later years to, artistic, architectural, educational, historical, his life of the mind that Jefferson treasured. He's also falling deeper and deeper in debt. The country once again is at war with Great Britain. And in just two weeks, British soldiers would torch the U.S. Capitol, uh, burning the books that the Congress had come to rely on and creating the circumstances in which Jefferson would be able to sell his own collection to the government and establish the Library of Congress. All right, in eight, August of 1814, Jefferson receives a letter from a young Albemarle neighbor named Edward Coles. Coles had been private secretary to James Madison in the White House, called the executive mansion at that time. Uh, he had become convinced that slavery was evil, that it needed to be abolished, but that he faced the personal uh, dilemma of having just inherited a plantation and slaves. Now, he, he, he genuinely uh, struggled with this problem because he knew that if he simply uh, freed his slaves, they would have to live, leave Virginia within a year under law and uh, would do so without any kind of resources at all. He could sell them to another slaveholder, but by, almost by definition, any slaveholder that would buy them from, from him would not have the scruples uh, Coles himself did about their treatment, and he thought this was not a, a good option. Uh, finally, he thought, well, if the, in the worst possible case, I'll leave Virginia. But I hope that doesn't happen because I think that the time has come in which Virginia can abolish slavery. And it was with that in mind that he wrote this very passionate letter to Jefferson saying, you know, I've admired you and known you for your whole life. I know that you've written eloquently on the evils of slavery. And now that you are comfortably retired and you have this great moral authority, now's the time to join your efforts uh, to, join, to put your energies to use ending slavery. And what a wonderful uh, capstone this will be to your career. Now, Jefferson, on August 25th, 1814, replied, and his response, it's characteristically thorough and thoughtful and also more revealing than Jefferson probably intended it to be. Coles was approaching Jefferson in, in very real-world problem of how does a real-life slaveholder handle real, the problem of owning real slaves. And Jefferson's response was uh, philosophical, it was political, it drew, drew on sociology and history, and it was also thoroughly theoretical. Jefferson said, yes, slavery is wrong. He'd made no secret of his views of this through the years. He said even... He said, the hour of, the, of emancipation is advancing on the march of time, whether by the generous energy of our own minds or by bloody race war. However, he had concluded that, as he put it, nothing can be hoped from the present generation, meaning his own. He's 71 years old at this time. He says he's too old, too tired. He's done all he can. He has no more energy left for such an undertaking. He wishes Coles well in it and concludes this enterprise is for the young. Now, however much Jefferson's reply must have disappointed Coles and surely disappoints us today, the reasoning is more subtle than might first appear, and the answer is, in a sense, more disingenuous than we'd like to hope. Uh, at 71, Jefferson might have been too old for a lot of projects, uh, 
he was certainly not too old to get on his horse and ride down the mountain virtually every day, except when the weather was extreme, uh, to work on uh, the grounds at the, what would become the, the University of Virginia, uh, picked the curriculum, the, helped select the professors, designed the building, did all these wonderful things that I'm grateful that he did, but he was also at 71 still a man with a great deal of energy and enterprise. At any rate, uh, uh, Jefferson, uh, uh, five days after responding to Coles, received a letter from another Virginian friend who was advising, who was asking Jefferson's advice on how, on the education of the man's son. And Jefferson referred him to Scottish and British Enlightenment thinkers who uh, stressed that man possesses a more, what he called a more, what they called a moral sense. It's like the sense of sight in some ways. And Jefferson believed that it, there was more profit in, in studying, the bio, studying biology than cons, on a matter like this than consulting theologians. Jefferson and the, and the Enlightenment thinkers on the subject believe that man is a social animal and that through living in community, the, this moral sense is refined and uh, whether an act is uh, ethical or not it is uh, a function of its utility to the group more so than to the individual. Uh, it's a truism that Jefferson believed in progress and in human progress and in a sense human predict, uh, perfectibility, which he did. However, this was not some simple-minded belief that this was inevitable. Nor, and this is significant in Jefferson's views on slavery, did he believe that this moral refinement, this ethical development could be rushed. Mankind, Jefferson believed, progressed not through acts of heroic individuals setting some example of moral excellence to, that others might uh, imitate, as Coles and others believe, but through the shared experience of a group as it inches its way toward a more ethical society. This advancement in moral refinement, Jefferson believed, takes place by degrees over time and in response to very specific historical circumstances. And the specific historical circumstance of the settlers along the Atlantic coast was the break with Great Britain, the Declaration of Independence, and the formation of a self-governing republic. The one, one of two things people know about Jefferson. They know he wrote the Declaration of Independence. They also know he had a relationship with Sally Hemings. Beyond that, it's wide open. But uh, Jefferson, uh, in discussing the Declaration of Independence, always insisted, and there was no false modesty in this, that this was not some creative work by an individual genius. He was merely distilling the common wisdom of Americans at this time. And, he, and he's telling the truth there. It, the, this achievement marks the significant moment in human progress, and through it, Jefferson believed, by arriving at this understanding, the need to form a new uh, government. These settlers had reached a new level of moral development. But, Jefferson believed, the settlers who had made this revolution were white. And this refining experience, because it was an experience, uh, could not be artificially transplanted into people who, through no fault of their own, were not participants in it. Now, Jefferson always viewed slavery as a crime not against individual slaves, but against the, an entire people. It was a national uh, crime. And for Jefferson, the question was never, 
are uh, African Americans uh, human? The question for Jefferson was whether African Americans could ever become Americans. He said these, these aren't Americans, never will be. They were dragged here against their will from Africa by English slave traders who lacked the moral refinement that Jefferson and his contemporaries had. Um, and as long as that was the case, they would remain a captive nation within our borders. Whatever country a black man might choose to call his own, Jefferson wrote in notes on the state of Virginia, it must be any other than the one in which he is born to live and labor for another. And just as American whites had created their own nation along the Atlantic coast, Jefferson believed that African blacks in bondage in this country would have to forge their own civilization elsewhere through unique historical experiences of their own. Only as a free and independent people, he said, would they develop these virtuous habits of mind that render people capable of self-government. Now, the solution to this for Jefferson was, as it was for a lot of thinkers of the day, was expatriation. Uh, slaves would have to be colonized somewhere else, perhaps in the American Southwest, but more likely in the West Indies or in Africa. And there they would form their own civilization. Now, others um, supported these efforts in part just to get black people out of, out of this country. Jefferson, sharing the prejudices of his day, wished that as well, but he also did so to, in, in all fairness in the belief that this was an important and necessary uh, step for their own uh, development as a people. The way that Jefferson believed slavery was to be abolished was for Virginians, by their own volition, to end it themselves. This would occur, he believed, when as a group they came to see slavery for the crime that it was against humanity. That, uh, and they could not be rushed in their arrival at this conclusion because Jefferson, the, the civil libertarian, believed that opinions cannot be co coerced. The refinement of the moral sense could not be uh, enforced from without. To do so, for, others, for people other than Virginians or South Carolinians or Georgians, to... Uh, for someone other than, than these different uh, states to, abolish, to, to enforce abolition on them would be to violate the Declaration of Independence itself and the entire scheme of American self-government. And these, the principles for which this achievement had been made would not be violated, Jefferson believed, simply because passionate people could be impatient. Truth advances and error recedes by steps only, Jefferson observed, and to do our fellow man the most good in our power, we must lead where we can, follow where we cannot, and still go with them, watching always the favorable moment for helping them to another step. And so on this basis, Jefferson chose what the historian John Chester Miller has called the unheroic but eminently prudent policy of biding his time, awaiting the ripening of public opinion. Well, 35 years later, the issue of slavery as invading armies devastated Virginia was indeed settled. Uh, a later generation, as Jefferson predicted, would settle this matter. Now, I said a, a moment ago that Jefferson believed that 
The blacks were not Americans in large part because they had not participated in the American Revolution. What Jefferson did not say, however, was that in Virginia, blacks were not allowed to do so. And I'm calling you back to, to Latrobe's image of the wagons on the Elizabeth River. Many black Americans did give their all in the war for independence. Many fought heroically, as would be acknowledged by their own commanders. Despite initial opposition from General Washington, 5,000 black men enlisted in the Continental Army. By 1778, at least one out of every 20 men in the Continental Army was black. That's 5% of the fighting force. They served an average of four and a half years compared to three and a half for white soldiers. Now, Virginians enlisted more African Americans than any other state. Two Virginia brigades, nearly 200 strong, fought at Monmouth Courthouse. One free black family from Lancaster County sent at least nine brothers and cousins to the Continental Army. But blacks were prohibited from joining the Virginia State Militia, as, were, as they were in many states. But those who did not enlist were conscripted for non-combat duties. 1776 in New York, all able-bodied black men were, uh, in, were conscripted to for, help the soldiers fortify the town. In Virginia, when Jefferson was governor, the state bought black men, women, and children to labor for the state in lead mines as wagoners, blacksmiths, carpenters, and in the state-owned ironworks where they forged cannons. Now, none of this is to suggest that the British who promised slaves their freedom for running off and helping the loyalist cause, performed any more admirably than did the patriots. At British insistence, for example, runaways built the fortifications at Yorktown. Many died in the shelling. In fact, Yorktown's an interesting case because uh, one uh, runaway black named uh, James, runaway slave named James Armistead, uh, endeared himself to Lafayette. Lafayette persuaded him to volunteer in Corn first at Benedict Arnold's force and then in Cornwallis's. He uh, endeared himself to Cornwallis to the point that Cornwallis thought he was spying for him. In fact, Armistead remained a, a spy for um, Lafayette. And when Cornwallis visited Lafayette after the surrender, he found Armistead in Lafayette's tent, chatting amiably with him. Um, now, I said Cornwallis it, it conscripted uh, uh, runaways to um, uh, help at Yorktown, but when he could no longer use or free these or, or feed these slaves, he turned them out. As one soldier said, they might be seen scattered about in every direction with the smallpox for their bounty and starvation and death for their wages. Others, as Latrobe found out, had gathered at the river. Having been denied their freedom here at home, they hoped against hope to find it elsewhere. Now, I've, I've thrown quite a lot at you today, and you've been very patient. And there's an awful lot that you can do with information of this kind. Um, the Washington Post, in its review of Twilight at Monticello, came to the same conclusion that a lot of, I think, less than thoughtful people have. 
who, who, who view the... Um, you view the overall record of Jefferson on race and, and come to the conclusion that he was, as is frequently said, a hypocrite. The question that is always raised is this, is how could, the, how could a man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, who said that all men were created equal, how could this man have owned slaves? And the, uh, there's really only one way to answer that question, and it is too easy, and it's unfair, and it doesn't do justice to Jefferson and his time, and it doesn't help our understanding. To, to conclude, as a lot of, uh, of people do, that Jefferson, well, he was just a hypocrite, may make the person who, who says that feel better about themselves in some way, and superior, and, and I find it condescending, um, doesn't explain very much. It's histo- as, as, as a writer on history, I've never claimed to be a historian, but as a writer on, hi- on history, um, it's not even a, a productive question. It doesn't lead you anywhere. You don't understand any more about the man or the period or yourselves or your nation's history by asking the question in that way. But if you reverse it, you come to a very... You, you, it takes on a different form. The question then becomes, how could a man born into a slave-holding society who inherits slaves, who comes by more slaves in his marriage, who is dependent upon slave labor for his economic wherewithal, how could this man have concluded that slavery was wrong, could have gone on record throughout his life in, in, in written documents like Notes on the State of Virginia, or as a legislator in the House of Burgesses when he authored, uh, very early in his career, he authored legislation to, for the gradual emancipation of slaves, uh, which this is, by the way, what led him in part to the conclusion that nothing was to be hoped by his generation. The thing didn't, never got out of committee. Um, he stated his opposition. As, for, for a time, he was opposed to the uh, extension of slavery into the Northwest Territories. And he made, no, uh, he made no secret of his belief that this was evil. So how could a man with this, uh, this situation, with it coming for, as he did uh, from a slaveholding society, have come to these conclusions, and in his faltering and incomplete and disappointing way, nevertheless made some efforts to end it? You ask the question in that way, and you can have a substantive conversation about the provenance of ideas, about moral progress, and about the sophisticated thinking of a very serious, serious man, Thomas Jefferson. You ask the question in that way, and for me anyway, my admiration for him increases. Um, I hope yours does as well. Um, and I hope that, that when that subject comes up, that's sort of the way you begin to think of it. One thing I've learned in, in studying Jefferson is that man's thinking is much more subtle than I imagined it to be and that I think most writers on Jefferson understand. Um, and I can see by the clock that, that, that now comes for me the scary part of this time together. I remember uh, uh, about two years into my research, which was all of about four or five years, Someone asking me, Alan, is there anything about Thomas Jefferson at this point that you don't know? And 
I got asked that twice in one week by two different people. And I had to laugh because people write entire books on Jefferson and music and Jefferson and wine and Jefferson and architecture and Jefferson and Madison. Endless. I scratched the surface. I know a little bit about a little bit. Um, I know there's probably 10 people in this audience who probably teach Jefferson, have studied him their entire lives, and are waiting like those... Uh, <laughs> Like those people who, like, like the Civil War buffs who, who read books on the Civil War and then tell the author, you got that belt buckle wrong. Um, so, you know, when you live in a world of real scholars, you, you develop a, an imposter complex. And these, this is the time to bring it on. Um, uh, I remember Mike Huckabee when he was running for president. Maybe he still is. I think he's running for vice president now. When he was running for president, he said that, uh, well, if you can't stand the sight of your own blood, you don't get into the battle. Um, so, with the time we have left between now and the time I get to sign books, I'll take, I'd be happy to take any questions that you might have. Uh, with the, even, in, even questions about Sally Hemings, although I can tell looking out at this crowd that this is far more high-minded, <laughs> sophisticated, scholarly a group to ever be interested in any such thing. Um, if, if, if you're not that way, we can talk now or, or even afterwards. So thank you very much. And, I, and I've been told to repeat the question, so if I don't repeat the question, remind me. And so you're all wanting to know about Sally Hemings and her too shy to ask. Yes, sir. That is not quite correct. Uh, the question was, did Jefferson free all of his slaves except Sally Hemings in his will? And um, my understanding is that he freed only uh, her, her children, who were uh, skilled craftsmen about the plantation. A couple of, them, a couple of her children were, in fact, allowed. One ran off and was never chased and... and Another one was allowed to, um, to, um, to leave the plantation, and I think, I, I can't remember exactly the number, but I think three or four of her, her sons also received their freedom. She did not. The interesting thing about Sally Hemings' children, they, they were legally white. Jefferson had figured out how, uh, how many cross-breedings it took to, under law to, uh, for, for the children of white men and, and uh, slave women to be legally white. And, and Sally Hemings' children were legally white. And in fact, two of them uh, wished to marry black women. And in order to do so, they had to go to the courthouse in Albemarle and register as, and change their registration to black. I had a question down here.
how much time did he spend on it? Was it did he try to uh, uh, enrich the soil in any way after uh, growing tobacco? In other words, um, this is this I. Next week, I hope there'll be a speaker on Jefferson and agriculture. <laughs> um, uh, Jefferson did decide at one point, uh, one of the granddaughters left an interesting letter, and she said, because uh, tobacco is so hard on the slaves, Jefferson is, has decided, my gran- grandpapa, I think they called him, has decided not to grow tobacco. So, so he's growing wheat. But of course, uh, the money was really to be, to be made at his plantation in Poplar Forest where uh, the, the conditions for tobacco were better. That was about 90 miles south of, uh, of uh, Monticello. Continued to grow tobacco there. But switched at, at Monticello to wheat. But that was uh, what most uh, people trying to, uh, who had tried to grow tobacco in, in, uh, in Albemarle had, had decided to do. They shifted to wheat. Um, Jefferson was a, a brilliant, like, he was in so many ways, he was brilliant agriculturally on paper. <laughs> he, underst- he was very interested in the intellectual aspects of, of, of uh, horticulture, was less successful in actually growing the crops. Um, his, his garden's an excellent example of that. A, if you go to Monticello today, it's a beautiful garden. It's a vegetable garden, I mean, not flower garden. And he, he was bringing in, you know, plants from Europe, and this was his experimental garden, his garden laboratory, whatever he called it. And, uh, and it's beautiful to see, but unfortunately it rarely produced food crops. Um, and so year after year, the, uh, his daughter, Martha, and her, uh, uh, her children would buy their, uh, their greens from the, the little plots in the, in the slave quarters. They're much more successful growing uh, <laughs> as gardeners than Jefferson ever was. Is that yes. helpful? Oh, come on. <laughs> There's a hand. Yes. was my um, uh, impression, uh, from my research, was my impression of Jefferson as a man on a pedestal uh, increased or, or decreased? Is that? That assumes that I believe Jefferson was a man on a pedestal. <laughs> and I, I never did. Um, but my, uh, my, you know, a lot of the things in this book are... Um, about the grim realities of trying to live at Monticello. Most uh, Virginia planters and, and farmers very wisely put their, uh, their uh, houses on the riverbank, right? Not on the riverbank, but on a, on a slight rise, maybe a hill, overlooking the river. And then the uh, boats could come down the river. There was often a notched, a canal, uh, parallel to the, uh, or perpendicular to the river, and they could bring uh, things they needed right off the boats, right up to the house, or the stables, or the barns, or whatever. 
No, that wasn't what Jefferson had in mind. He, he put his house on a mountain. Right? So, so suddenly you've got a little bit of a problem getting stuff up and down, right? Uh, most plantation houses' roofs are sort of like this. Not, not Jefferson's. His are flat, which has the effect of gathering water, right? So the house leaked. Um, so uh, part of the, where I'm going with this is, that, is that, the, the, that I did a great deal of research into the daily life at Monticello. I think a lot of writers on Jefferson, bless their hearts, they do wonderful work. Uh, they get a little suckered into the way, into Jefferson's own uh, passion for the abstract. Right? They, they want to write about Jefferson's ideas, and before they do, they're lost in them. And I wanted to show how Jefferson's idealism and optimism was constantly uh, coming into uh, um, conflict with the daily realities of life, of, of life as it is lived. Um, so that one, one effect can, that can have on some thinkers and writers is to say, well, Jefferson was just like anybody else. Uh, the other thing is that the, the other thing you can conclude from that is that isn't it remarkable this, this man living in this leaky house <laughs> with all the problems he had, the health problems and the family squabbles and the... Um, and the debt that he's living with, and all the contradictions he's trying to, to resolve in his own mind, how this man, guilty as so many people say of denial and compartmentalization and all of this, how this man could have, could have done all he did uh, with the problems that he had. And they, 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 the compartmentalization may have some have difficult, uh, have, have some contradictions, et cetera, in it, but the ability to concentrate on the task at hand uh, is also a blessing, you know. And uh, uh, Jefferson, had Jefferson not been able to do this, he wouldn't have done the things for which we remember him today. Uh, so you can come away admiring him the more when you realize what his life was really like. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a book that's been published by a friend of mine, and, and by all accounts, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful and, and important book. But we have a rather different conclusion, I believe, about Jefferson and, and women. Uh, there are people who've written that Jefferson, you know, was a misogynist. A misogynist, that he had some problem with women, and that uh, most, most people do. And so, so, in some way or another, right? However, show me a man that doesn't. Um, but, but what you find, if you read the accounts of people who visited Monticello, and they'll say, you know, it's really remarkable. Uh, the women, after, you know, the, we ate dinner, and, and the women spoke out on, uh, the, on the topics of the day just like a man would. And that Jefferson um, encouraged this. And he wanted them to be educated, not perhaps formally. Formal education was still developing itself. But so certainly Martha, Je Randolph, Martha Jefferson Randolph, his, his, the one daughter who survived to, uh, into her 40s and 50s, um, she was educated at the convent school in Paris. 
and um, uh, read widely, and I sure spoke at least French. Um, but she was a highly intelligent, very capable woman, and, um, and if you try to figure out who in, in life Jefferson trusted the most on the important matters that, uh, uh, that he dealt with, I think it was his daughter Martha, um, admirable woman. And uh, any idea that Jefferson had a problem with, with, uh, with, with women or whether or not they were intelligent or capable, it seems to me uh, misplaced. Jefferson did not want uh, women to take part in politics. And the reason for this is very interesting in itself. It, it wasn't that he doubted that they were intelligent enough to do it, but he said if they mix too much in public life, it will, uh, what is the phrase, it will lead to ambiguity of issue, <laughs> a subject with which he became intimately familiar. <laughs> yes, I think in the back. No, yes, over here. What would you say, uh, in, as Thomas Jefferson neared the end of his life, what was his relationship with religion as he got closer to the end? It's interesting. I mean, Jefferson, uh, oh, I'm sorry. The question was, how did Jefferson's ideas or his relationship with uh, religious faith um, uh, change, if at all, in his later years? Um, Jefferson was accused of being an atheist in his own time, which is not accurate at all, nor was uh, he what uh, some political activists would claim today, some kind of born-again Christian. Uh, he was, uh, I guess the term at the time was a deist. Uh, very close to, I suppose, what a Unitarian might be, or even a liberal Episcopalian. Um, <laughs> he, he, uh, he read, uh, he read uh, his own version of the Bible in which he took out uh, uh, scissors and a pot of paste, and, uh, and, and having uh, discovered that the, the biblical... Uh, Scholarship and, and criticism is a very simple matter. Uh, just hacked out all the miracles and the supernatural stuff and the apocalyptic stuff and anything in the New Testament that he said couldn't possibly have happened or seemed, I guess, out of character with Jesus. He just <laughs> threw in the fireplace and then he pasted together his own version, which he used for a kind of devotions. Um, he seems to have believed in an afterlife, um, in which his ideas were, were rather sentimental. He would, he would refer to uh, seeing loved ones after he was dead. He would, tell, he would uh, um, comfort others with this and, and comforted it, uh, himself with the prospect of seeing uh, his wife um, and a couple of the daughters who had died. Um, he... Um, his, he never became uh, orthodoxly um, uh, religious. And in fact, in his dying days, he was uh, uh, the, the Reverend Mr. Hatch, who was the Episcopal priest in Charlottesville, uh, wanted to come see him. And, and Jefferson said, well, he would be happy to see, see him as a friend, but not as a clergyman. Yes. What was his economic 
declining. <laughs> what was his economic status in his, in his declining years? It was declining as well. He, um, he as I said, he was, he was a good theoretical farmer. He was, an, uh, he, he was a meticulous bookkeeper. He, if he, if he uh, was uh, riding down the, down the road on his horse and he saw a beggar, he might give him a dollar, right? And he would meticulously enter that in his account books. And then if he had some money coming in from tobacco or poplar force, he would enter that in. But he never got around to balancing the equation. Right? He understood bookkeeping. He just wasn't very good at it. And so, and he also had, had was uh, optimistic in a way I wish I were, in that he would say, well, of course we can afford that because the crops next year will be better. <laughs> he, has the, he has the plantation in Bedford County called Poplar Forest, uh, which is to provide all the income on which the family will live from his retirement in 1809 until, of course, he didn't know when he was going to die, but through 1826. This is what the family is going to live on, the tobacco from Bedford County. The crops in Albemarle, I think, are to pay de existing debts. So he says, yes, but if I'm going to spend all that time in Bedford County, I've got to have a house to live in. So while he's uh, uh, a president of the United States, he designs a house for himself at Poplar Forest which he says, by the way, is going to be the finest house in Virginia except maybe for Monticello. <laughs> and, of course, the house cost more than the, than the crops ever made. So the idea that he, that he needed the house to, to manage the plantation, uh, he was kidding himself. And so by the time he, was, he died, he, the, the family discovered he was in, in terrible arrears. They were responsible for it. So within a few months after his death, a public auction was held at Monticello selling slaves, livestock, farm equipment, household furnishings, all this wonderful furniture and plate and whatever, that in wine glasses that he had gotten while he was traveling in Europe um, as, a, as a diplomat. All that stuff had to be sold. For a while, the family lived there in what was a virtual shell until 1831, in, in, in which the, the house itself was, was sold. So, the, so Monticello passed out of the, Jeff, the Jefferson and Randolph families in 1831, along with the, acre, the acreage. I think all they kept was the graveyard. Yes, ma'am. Uh, that, very good point. Uh, I was, I, uh, the, 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 our guest said that, um, that Washington, of rel George Washington, a relatively uneducated man, seems to have been a far better businessman than Jefferson, the educated man. And um, I think that, uh, that this is true more often uh, than, than you might guess. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, but it's true. Washington was a real businessman. Um, Washington didn't quite have the pretensions to gentlemanly status that a lot of uh, a lot of Virginia farmers did. 
You know, when the, when the great houses like Shirley and Berkeley and some of these plantation houses were built down on the James River, um, these were built by men who made money hand over fist. They ran trading posts, they traded in slaves, they did everything they could to make money and built these grand houses. Well, two or three generations later, all these men are gentlemen. And gentlemen don't deal in commerce, right? They don't deal in trade. They can either be soldiers or clergymen uh, or gentlemen farmers if they have to work at all. And um, so they get good educations and then they, then they, like the kids at Bazaar Plantation, they have too much time on their hands. <laughs> uh, even the profession of law was looked down on at least until Jefferson's day, and a term of opprobrium of that day was a Richmond lawyer, <laughs> which John Marshall was. John Marshall was a, the men who, who made money during this time, during Jefferson's time, seemed to have been a lot of the lawyers. Jefferson practiced law for a short time, and when he got enough money through marriage that he didn't have to do it anymore, he quit and devoted himself to politics full time. So that when he left the presidency, he lost his presidential salary, and he didn't, uh, he didn't go as our uh, current presidents do and make millions of dollars speaking to, the, to foreign corporations. He, he needed that. I'm not familiar with that statement. I, th I, I know his attitude toward dogs. Uh, this is a book that someone should write. <laughs> no one has written Jefferson and dogs yet. <laughs> but I'll tell you an unfunny story about Jefferson and dogs. I hope I don't bring everybody down with this. But um, Jefferson, the dogs at Monticello at one point were feasting on the sheep. And these dogs were the pets of the slaves at Monticello. In Jefferson, I believe Edmund Bacon was the um, overseer at the time. He said, I've had enough of this. I don't like dogs. Round them all up and kill them. And Bacon did. So I don't know that particular quote, but it certainly has the ring of truth. <laughs> Didn't like dogs. I have no idea about his attitude toward cats. <laughs> or ferrets. <laughs> yes? Yeah, uh, for a man who was obviously, uh, I guess this was a period in which if you survived, you know, your infancy... You could live a long time. And so Jefferson lived to be 83, and he was a remarkable physical specimen. Uh, athletic and, and, and slender and, 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 uh, and high energy and got a lot of things done. But he would periodically have these debilitating, what we would call psychosomatic illnesses. And the, the first one occurred, I believe, when he proposed marriage to a young lady in Williamsburg, and she... Turned him down. The second, when his 
in, in, I think, 1776, when his mother died, when his wife Martha died, when he was uh, battling uh, Alexander Hamilton as a member of, of uh, George Washington's cabinet. And the worst appears to have been in around 1808, when uh, in his last two years in the presidency, he's tried to slap an embargo on trade with Great Britain to, uh, and France to avoid war with the European powers, and uh, he hopes to, um, to uh, prevent the predation of, of foreign uh, warships on American shipping. So he slaps this embargo on, on trade, and the country is horrified by this. It plunges the nation into a, into a uh, political, uh, into an economic depression. The, uh, the things for which we remember as presidency were soon forgotten. The, the, uh, the uh, uh, Lewis and Clark expedition, and the Louisiana Purchase, and the defeat of the Barbary Pirates, and the... Uh, the repeal of the Alien Sedition Acts, all of these things are considered minor when, the, when he's plunged the nation into a terrible economic downturn. So the, uh, the, the presidential mansion by 1807-1808 is a pretty lonely place. And at one point, Jefferson, uh, at the worst of this, he takes to his bed for a full week with his severe headaches, uh, with which uh, and said to Gallatin that, that during this period he was capable of, of um, conscious thought for about an hour a day. By the way, the effect of his, of his embargo was, according to one historian, uh, trying to bring uh, England and France to, to their knees in this matter, he said, was like a, a flea trying to break up a dogfight by threatening suicide. <laughs> Didn't work. Yes. She moved, I believe, to Charlottesville, where she lived. The plan was uh, she was to live with the two of her sons. Beyond that, I don't think much is known about her later years. I'm sure there's somebody in here that does know the, <laughs> the answer, and I'd defer to them, but I believe that was the plan. She was to live with with two of her grown sons in Charlottesville. Yes, ma'am. What kind of health problems did he have in his latter years? Do you really want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Besides the headaches he suffered from, uh, uh, he went to the springs in, uh, uh, warm springs and developed boils on his backside. And then he suffered from another form that, that his psychosomatic illnesses took was a, a near-fatal diarrhea. Does anybody want to ask one more question that will <laughs> clear the air, so to speak? Pardon me? Oh, uh, Madison. <laughs> Cut this off, but... Were you going to finish the story about Nancy Randolph? 
It's in a book called Unwise Passions. <laughs> I recommend it highly. 